man, that is awesome just to see someone vulnerably kind of have their thoughts written down and share them openly with us. So thank you, Xander, for, for doing that. We'll unpack some of uh, what she talked about here in just a moment. Um, but hey, my, my name is Shibu Matthew. I'm a pastor at Heartland Community Church south in Olathe, and uh, have been a friend of Joel Creek for many, many years and love being back here with you. Uh, since I've last been with you, my family has changed. Uh, we've grown by one. We added a baby girl in June. Uh, her name is Ella K. Matthew, and uh, indulge me. I'm just going to brag on my baby. and just She's done nothing, but here she is. She's beautiful. Uh, this is Ella K. Matthew, a photo of her. She's being held by great-grandma Eunice, uh, who is, get this, 99 years old, turning 100 in January. Yeah, 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 we can... I couldn't get the moment right till I get them both looking at the camera, and so I kind of actually like that it's kind of a candid shot uh, where they're uh, both in awe for different reasons, right? One, because she's 99 getting to hold her, I believe, seventh great-grandchild, and, uh, and she's just loving this moment. And the, the granddaughter, the baby, is in awe because, well, she's just seeing everything for the first time. And I show you this photo because, A, it's cute, obviously, uh, but it also represents something that we're talking about today in kind of an end-around sort of way. Uh, see, Eunice is a part of the greatest generation, a.k.a. the GA, GI generation. The greatest generation refers to Americans born in the 1900s. Between then and the 1920s, they lived through the Great Depression, and many of them and their peers fought in World War II. And you have her holding a baby born in 2022, who is a part of the generation after Gen Z, okay? Uh, their sociologists are calling them Generation Alpha, babies born from the mid-2020s to the mid-20-teens. There's 100 years nearly between those two souls. My wife's grandmother is Eunice, it's a, a, so a, grand, a grandmother by marriage, and she's a widow. Her husband passed away nearly 30 years ago, and she represents part of the single community. She's uh, uh, even been proposed to once or twice in her later years. Now, today's topic in the Insta family is singles, and uh, it's, I just want to like, make note, this is a tough topic, and that's why you get a guest speaker. Uh, because I am likely to offend some of you, all of you, most of you at some point during this message. Uh, why? Because some are happily single. Some are frustratingly single. And those who aren't single are wondering what value this message has for them. I don't think, and this is uh, anecdotal, I don't think that singles are treated like everyone else. Just like we heard in Sanders sharing a few minutes ago, we say things to them that are callous. We don't really understand how our words land with a person who's single. And we don't see them like God sees them. Singles are everywhere, a part of every generation from the GI generation to Gen Z. There are single dads, single moms, single foster parents, single young adults, single widows, divorced singles, and so on. And sometimes the situations that led to a particular single, the scenario that led to a particular single situation are hard 
sometimes it's how life played out, and there's sometimes nothing painful about this situation. You're single now, and it's not a big deal. Now, today's message isn't just for singles. It's for everyone listening. And if you happen to be single, I think there's something God wants you to feel, hear, experience, discover today. And if you happen to not be single, then I hope you leave understanding how God sees those people who are single in our community, both Shoal Creek community and those who we come into contact with in our everyday lives. One last question just to frame up our time here. Might it be that all of us value our earthly romantic relationships more than the one relationship that matters most, the one with the creator God himself? I've been guilty of that before. Do we value these relationships more than we do this relationship? So how does God see people and single people at that? That's the question I want us to look at today. And to see this answer, let's go to the beginning to see what God says about humanity, his creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created all that we see. And when it came time for the pinnacle of his creation, after all the stars, the plants, the jellyfish, and the tigers, comes the crown jewel of his creation, humanity, people. It goes on in Genesis chapter 1 to say this, God saw, and he has this moment after creation has completed, this moment, God saw all that he had made. Uh, This is the next verse here on the slides. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. I want you to look at a couple words there just at the very end of that first line. Very good. You, we are very good, a part of his very good creation. Yes, he made Adam and Eve, and they are an item. But it's not the item, the couple, that God is calling very good. He's looking over everything he's made, of which human beings are the pinnacle, and saying, it's all very good. You with me still? Okay, we're going to keep going here. Uh, there's some, uh, some phrases you're going to walk away today with that you can impress your friends with over coffee. Uh, but there's a Latin phrase, imago Dei. And imago Dei just means image of God. And it's a phrase that happens here in this passage. I want to uh, turn back to that first slide we looked at, Genesis 1:27. Do you see that phrase, in his own image, in the image of God, in the imago Dei, he created them? What exactly does it mean, the image of God? Does it mean that we're like a reflection of God, if we're created in the image of God? Because a reflection is not the thing that it's reflecting, it's simply a reflection, but we seem to be somehow more than that. Well, it means, and this is when Genesis was written in the ancient world, Image, that word image was believed to in some ways carry the essence of that which it represented. So Imago Dei means that we carry the essence of the thing that is God. We carry the essence of God, the most fundamental parts of God, mind, body, and spirit are God, and we are those things too. It also means, secondly, it means that we look like God. Somehow, some way, either in personality or appearance, we look like God. We have been made in his image. And thirdly, this is a, I've written this a little funny, intentionally. None of us doesn't bear the image of God. 
meaning all of us bear the image of God, but I just want you to hear it in the negative. Like to see none of us, not a person you will run into today, does not bear the image of God, the essence of God. Take a look at this photo again. I showed it to you at the top, but it's just another way for me to see baby Ella. Now, look at the photo, and and those two, the three-month-old and the 99-year-old, bear the essence of God the image of God. And when I look into each of their eyes, we actually had dinner last night together, our family and Grandma Gigi. And at dinner, I look into the infant's eyes and I look into great-grandma's eyes and I see someone wholly unique, created in the Imago Day. And I can learn something about God by looking into their eyes, glimpsing the soul of another human being. That is fascinating. Somehow, we've kind of lost that fascination with other people, the people in our family, the people in our row, the people who check us out at the grocery store. We've lost that fascination. But namely, I think we've lost the fascination with single people in the world. I'm guilty of this too. I had a friend named Kate, and uh, uh, Kate was a good friend. She was like a sister friend that gave me advice, and I was interested in Anna, my now wife. And, uh, and so I ran my play-by-play by Kate to say, ask Kate what she thought of my plan to ask Anna out. And Kate was super encouraging and informative and helpful, like, do it now, don't do it now, but do it now. And I remember she literally sent me out, like we were huddled up, and she sent me out, and I went out and asked Anna out. And Anna said yes. And I, went, I, I came back to the huddle, you know, she was like my coach, came back to the huddle, and she was like patting me on the back and like, hey, way to go, that's awesome, happy for you. Many months later, uh, when Anna and I were engaged and headed for married land, uh, in my new relationship glow, I told Kate, you're totally going to get married too. Just wait. I'll never forget the honest look on her face when she just told me, maybe not. I don't know that that's going to happen. I doubled down and was like, it's totally going to happen in this naive callous comment said it will. She was content being single, is content being single, becoming more content with it each season. And here I was telling her basically that her true happiness lied in getting married. We say dumb stuff to single people, and so if you're single, I'm sorry that we say those things. Uh, I'm sorry we haven't just sat and listened to you like my friend Kate that day, and just been there for you with whatever you were feeling. After that Genesis 1 moment, thousands of years later, there comes another moment. It's a big moment because God is now sending part of him to the world, and it's when Jesus enters the world. And Jesus was single. Fascinating to note that. We know that he wasn't married, but like sometimes we just forget. Jesus was a single person. And in this moment, Jesus is 30 years old, and he is starting to realize it's time for me to move out in the thing that I came here to do. For 30 years, he has not done any preaching, teaching, healing, any of that stuff that would ultimately make him famous. And he knows his first step is to visit his cousin John. John is baptizing people. John is actually baptizing people who are asking 
for forgiveness of their sins from God. And Jesus comes to his cousin John to be baptized by him. And Jesus did not have sin to turn away from, so his baptism was very different. And here's how it went. In Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, I just want you to picture what happens here. It's, it's, a, it's a body of water, and Jesus has kind of entered the water, and he's kind of knee-deep, and he comes out to, to John in the water. And there's a little bit of a back and forth because John knows that Jesus is the Son of God, and he doesn't feel at all qualified to baptize him. But Jesus says, this, this must happen, John. John relents, and, and then something crazy happens because John baptizes Jesus, and as he brings him up out of the water, here's what happens. The heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And then, that's two things. This, first, the heavens tear open, whatever that looks like. Think Independence Day times a million, you know. The heavens tear open. Something comes down, an animal, like a dove, lands on Jesus, representing the Spirit of God. And then a thundering voice from heaven speaks and says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus heard those words at his baptism. Everyone heard those words. They were thunderous. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus received those words as a reminder of who he was, and those words were also meant for everyone who heard them to see Jesus differently. Jesus had, like I said, yet to do a single miracle. He had not preached one life-changing sermon. He hadn't done anything career-wise to gain any status, and at the moment of having zero achievements, God, his Father, says that he's pleased with him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's different than how I'm pleased with things. I'm pleased when someone does me a favor. I'm pleased when the grade card is straight A's. I'm pleased when the food is cooked right, when I'm out to eat. I'm pleased when I find a deal online. I'm pleased when something is done for me. God is pleased simply because Jesus is Jesus. He's pleased with him because he's who he is. It's true about all of us that God is pleased with you. You were made in his image. You carry his essence. No amount of yuck, no amount of sin drives him away from you. It actually gives him all the more reason to pursue you and be with you. It's hard to believe, though, that he's pleased with us because, and I don't know about you, I have a hard time feeling like I'm pleasing God. We feel the need to perform for God. We feel the need that to, to, to do things that will cause him to love us. And conversely, we think things like this. If you think about the opposite, we think that if something bad happens to us, it means he's not pleased with us. Now, our culture is consumed with relationships. Who's the one and who are you with and who are you with now? And so to all of us, and specifically to those who are single, I want you to hear what Jesus, another single heard from the Father, you are my child, whom I love, and I'm pleased with you. Before you lift a finger to do any work, I'm pleased with you. I think this whole scene happens because the Father wanted the Son to hear it, but perhaps as important, the Father wanted everyone to hear this moment, this baptism of Jesus. 
I had this moment when I was single where I realized I was trying to earn God's love. And I was confident in my doubts. I was confident. I knew that I knew. That's how deep my confidence was in this, this thought that I did not have God's love and approval. Uh, and I knew that because I wasn't getting what I wanted. Like, I just felt this so deeply. It was like, I know that God doesn't love me because I don't have what I want. It was an indicator that God wasn't happy with me. That's just how I felt about it. That's when I was single. Another moment when I was married, I, I was going through some hard counseling in a season, dealing with some anger, talking to my therapist about it, trying to figure out where that comes from and why I was kicking the dog. I wasn't a parent yet, but I didn't want to like treat my kids like I was treating my dog. And The dog's fine. It was a very gentle kick, I promise. <laughs> it was more like a get over here kind of thing. Not a... But this moment... After I was married, you know, I thought to myself, God really doesn't love me to let me go through this painful, expensive counseling journey. Why would he make anyone do this? Now, the truth was, in both those moments, God's love for me was constant, like a fire hydrant, full blast. I didn't have the heart to get his heart for me. I just couldn't see it. I... I was single and I was aching to be in a relationship and he wasn't withholding something good for me. He was actually letting me squirm a little so that I could settle down and realize he loves me even when I don't get what I want. And when I was wondering why he would let me go through something that kicked my tail, like counseling, I didn't see it like this at the time, but he just loved me too much to let me stay where I was. My heart whether I was single or married, didn't get God's heart for me. What do we do when you're going through a season like that, when your doubts are really strong about God, where you really wonder if he sees you as a child, as his child? You wonder if he loves you and if he's pleased with you? I think our best example is Jesus. Jesus knew there was one relationship more important than any other relationship in his life. It was the one with God the Father. He carved out space to spend time talking to God. He obeyed when he heard God speak, and he did this more than once. It became a habit for Jesus to, to make space to listen to his Father. No earthly relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband or wife is more important than the relationship that we have with God. If you're single, whether that's happily or unhappily, the most important relationship in your life is this vertical one with the Father. Find space this, this day, this week, to let his voice speak those three things. Identity, you're my child. Love, I love you. And pleasure, I'm pleased with you because you're you. And uh, if you're in a relationship, it's also true. It's true that in relationships, we can make those the priority and neglect this vertical relationship with God the Father. Jesus made space, not just once. Once didn't work for him, but he had a habit of returning to these conversations. Stillness and worship with God. How much more, if it was true for Jesus, who was God's son, God himself, 
needed to be reminded, needed to return to this place of quiet stillness, how much more is it true for us? There's a lyric, the song is, uh, and a song that's going to happen next, the band's going to play. And the lyric goes like this, I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. My flesh may fail, but you never will. I might be weak in my physical abilities and strength and emotional capacity, but your spirit, the same spirit that Jesus witnessed coming down in his baptism and resting on him, that same spirit is strong in us. And my flesh may fail, but you never will. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that we are uh, constantly in need of you. We're constantly in need of remembering that we need you. And so in this moment, God, with my friends gathered here and online, we just say, we remember right now that we need you, that we are weak without your strength. For those that are single in the room, meet them, God, in unique ways. For those in relationships in the room, remind us the most important part, the most important one relationship we can invest in is our relationship with you. And God, don't make that hard. We know you won't. We make it hard. We find it hard to get time with you because we're over-calendared and, and busy. But give us ways to be with you, to be strengthened, just like your son Jesus was strengthened by talking with you. In your name, Jesus, amen.